0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: What you illustrated with your frustration at a religious service in your context is that it's not doing the job it's supposed to do in your life. Right. You know, we, we, we come at this whole... Question from the from the perspective that religion is really the the tools that we use to make meaning of our lives and to, to help us live flourishing lives, um, and that that means all sorts of things. It means uh, giving you a sense of connection to other people around you, to your your deepest self, to the natural world, to the moments of transcendence, or the experiences that some people might call God, um, to you know, to a sense of time, to history, to uh, really, it, it helps you find a place in, in in the world. It gives you a sense of who you are, mm-hmm. um, and and so in that, you know, the example that you gave, when you're sitting there for an hour and all you're hearing is like shouting in sunscreen, it, it, like it's not helping you do that. And so a, a, a ritual or a set of, of words or chant or song or or um, you know, all the all the tools of religion. Um, we're right for, for, for at one point in time, and, and to be honest, you know someone could sit in that service and still really find something, but it's not it's not working for you, and you are <laughs> not alone in that question, um, right? We're seeing these drastic rise. The you know fastest growing religious group in the US is none of the above.
2: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too.
0: Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: Angie and Casper, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Yeah, So, you know, I was introduced to both of you by way of our uh, mutual friend, Brian Ferguson, who is one of our listeners. And when he told me uh, a bit about the work that you guys were doing around community, um, I was really, really intrigued by it, had a chance to to start digging the work. So I'm really thrilled to have you here. But before we get into your work, I want to start with a question that I have always uh, found has been really fun and revealing. And that is, what did your parents do for a living and how did that end up impacting the work that you've ended up doing?
1: That is such a great question because we think about that a lot of the time. Um, My parents are both Dutch. I was raised in England, but my folks are both from Holland and uh, my dad was a banker um, and left the bank uh, to set up his own company um, which he sold just before the crash so a lot of entrepreneurial energy in my home and my mother ran a bed and breakfast uh, at home and was a crossing guard and a bereavement counselor and a community clown and set up a pottery import business so there, there was a lot of kind of um, have a go uh, energy at home and, and my mum was very very engaged both with the schools that I went to and in village life in general and campaigned to create you know bike lanes in the village for, for bicycle safety and just you know definitely lived by the adage that you know if the the rules aren't working for you, go and change them. So um, I I see a lot of her energy uh, in in my work. And, you know, both of them care deeply about community, Um, uh, you know, again, like very connected locally, um, but also with our family living abroad, you know, very intentional about maintaining certain festivals and rituals at home and and really building our identity as little Dutch children, even though we were living in England. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, those were my folks.
5: Yeah, Casper and I sometimes laugh about the the overlap and combination of creativity and entrepreneurship in our upbringing, but my parents were both artists when they met. My mom was a mural painter in San Francisco, and my dad was a photographer and graphic artist. and. My dad ended up starting a business, a small company in the Bay Area, uh, all around working with artists, kind of a glorified Kinkos in some ways. (laughs) And then he ended up riding the dot-com boom and the dot-com bust. So there was always fluctuation around that entrepreneurial energy and trying to serve the market as it happened and emerged. But he was really motivated to do that out of trying to care for the family, even though at his heart, he was always an artist and has continued in that through line, even while we were kids, and especially now of, of finding the combination of trying to make a living and also uh, be an artist at the same time. And my mom, once she had kids, she stopped painting murals, but she ended up focusing a lot of her energy on fatherhood research, actually, and and doing about a PhD's worth of uh, research into the question of how fathers contribute to empathy development in children so there was a lot of a lot of work that went into the questions of parenting the questions of family and then the relationship between that and creativity in my home
2: mm-hmm. so for each one of you um how did what your parents did for a living uh impact the the choices and decisions you've made throughout your career and how did they ultimately lead to where you guys are at
1: well, I spent most of my teenage years rebelling against my father, um, so I was very, very clear that I would never go and work for a bank, uh, nor would I go into business. Um, so I, you know, I, I ended up going to university to, to study history, but really spent most of my time uh, very active on campaigning on climate change issues, so mobilizing young people, especially around the United Nations. Um, kind of negotiations process on the, uh, essentially on the climate change treaty. Um, And so I was, I think I was always a little bewildering to my dad who kind of wanted me to go and work for a company where I would learn the skills of leadership and teamwork. Um, And I think it's, you know, he he now understands that you can find those things in many places, but uh, yeah, definitely my first career moves were a little bit, I would say in response to that, but it's been interesting to see actually, you know, I ended up going to graduate school, which brought me to America to do a public policy degree. Um, And so already I was kind of taking some steps, you know, I was sitting in classes like entrepreneurial finance and leadership and uh, management, and and you know things that I think that, you know when I left college, I, I never thought I'd be interested in, but that served me extremely well in the work that I do now. So I I feel perhaps there's some integration happening there uh, to some extent. But you know, on my mom's side, she she never went to college. She uh, she did some horticultural training, um, and that's impacted me in unexpected ways. And that um, you know, kind of her eye for beauty uh, ended up, I think. Informing my decision of a spouse, my my husband's a, a musician and um, is a wonderful floral arranger, and so uh, you know, I think those things end up showing up in all sorts of unlikely places.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a profound impact for me as well, and I think the first piece of that was the creative piece where I just always assumed that my life would have something to do with the arts and that ended up being directly where I went all through my elementary, middle and high school experience. I was always in art classes and then ended up majoring in playwriting in college and turned that into a lot of my work for the first six years out of college. I moved to Brooklyn and was always in arts jobs, in arts communities, and looking specifically at community through the arts, which is a lot of what's led me to what Casper and I are doing now. So that was one piece of it. Another piece, I think what I mentioned about my mom's work around family, one thing that was hard about that growing up to watch was that she was doing so much and the work had so much integrity, but she wasn't attached to institutions of higher education as she was doing it. She was kind of doing it while raising three kids. And I've I've seen how she struggled to get that work into the world. And I think that impacted me insofar as I thought, all right, if I'm going to go try and help big ideas make a place in the world that actually translates into action, then it's probably going to be valuable for me to seek out peer groups and and platforms that other people are involved with and can recognize as being related to that. So that definitely informed my decision to leave New York and come to grad school here at Harvard Divinity School in order to do the work I do with Casper.
2: Casper, mm. <laughs> you said something about your mom that struck me. You said that you know she told you if uh, the rules aren't working for you, make your own rules. And I wonder why... Certain people are able to do that effectively and it starts to inform so much of what they do in their life and why other people aren't and, and what your experience and, and kind of everything you've done has shown about that.
1: Mm, yeah, I, you know, I, I've thought about that for some time and the answer I kind of landed at is I think so much has to do with really the unconditional love that I felt from, especially from my mother as a kid. Um, that that sounds maybe a little kind of psycho pop, you know, but <laughs> It, I mean, I think it's really true. I think that, that such a strong foundation at home, um, you know, every family has its challenges. But but that question was never one that was in doubt for me, even as a gay kid. You know, I came out when I was 15. Yeah. Um, there, there was a really solid ground of, of knowing that I always had home to come back to. And so many kids don't have that luxury. You know, that's not something that everyone experiences. And so I feel like that gives you that solidity at the center gives you the ability to take risks at the edge, um, and uh, and that's been a great gift for me. Uh, you know, I, I take those risks on my bicycle by not wearing a helmet and going through red lights as well. So, uh, you know, it's not always good, but um, but but I think there is really something to that. And I saw her do it. You know, I I saw her kind of take weird risks and do weird things. You know, she would, uh, re- she would paint, uh, uh, you know, there, w- there wasn't, uh, the bus service was very irregular from our village to the nearest town, which had a train station. And so my mum went out at like 2 a.m. and painted a-, a green dot right next to the bus stop. And she told all her friends, if you see someone standing in the, bu- in the green in the green dot, it means that they want to go to the station. And if you're driving by, you can give them a ride. Uh, of course, this was like completely illegal. And the local council freaked out and like had to paint over it. But, you know, it, it just it, that system's hacking, I think. And it was just, you know, it wasn't it wasn't techie and it wasn't at a huge scale. But I always saw her trying to make things better, even when, you know, the rules were against it. Mm. Can I
2: ask you uh, uh, to tell us in a bit more detail about what it was like to come out to a parent? and, And I'm curious to, you know, do something that risky, that challenging early in your life. Did it make other challenges pale in comparison and how did it impact the other risks that you've taken in your life?
1: yeah i you know i do i think I think everyone's coming out story is 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 different and you know it's not something that happened once. I always say we we come out every day right I'm always very um sure to mention it early on in a conversation um so that it's clear that I'm gay. I think that's something I, I want to be very public about um but you know again, my mum had made it very safe for me to do that she'd taken me out for lunch the year before so I, you know I was f- early 15 or late 14 and my mum never took me out for lunch you know that was very weird and, and it was this kind of fancy restaurant I was you know the, the idea was that it was after some exams but I knew something else was up and um, she, she just said at some point during the conversation she said Casper I want you to know I'm not just your mother I'm Suzanne you know I'm my own person and whoever you are I love you um, and I knew that she wanted me to tell her and I just <laughs> remember in my head being like, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> but because I wasn't ready, you know, but, but nine, 12 months later, I was ready. And I knew it was I knew it was safe to tell her. Now, I was lucky enough that I had an uncle who's gay, who's been with his uh, also an American partner for for decades at this point. So I had some amazing role models in my family. And I knew, you know, my, my family pro- politically was very progressive. So it, again, it was it was about as easy as it could be. Nonetheless, it was still really hard. Mm. Um, but, but as you say, I think having um, having kind of faced that and then uh, and, and w- with such positive results, because my life got better. You know, I was able to be full of myself, and not only at home but at, at school. Um, I, I I became just a happier um, just a happier person who was 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 more productive, had more friends. Like my life got better, and so I think whether it was about learning that, that risks pay off or whether it was about, you know, being true to, to myself and, and uh, being willing to do things that maybe society still has some questions about, um, that that pays off. And I, I do think that's true. Um, I mean, it's like, you know, if you work out in the morning, you've already done 20 burpees that morning. So what else is going to, you know, nothing's going to be harder. And, and I think that's, I think that's kind of true. My my first boss called it eating frogs. You know, if you eat the frog first, then everything else tastes better.
2: <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's interesting to hear you describe it. You know, it, it seems to me that coming out in a lot of ways, like you said, is not just about saying openly saying I'm gay, but also being yourself. Like we all have to do that to some degree in, in terms of the Absolutely. work that we do.
1: Absolutely. and And, you know, whether it's like, gosh, if you're diagnosed with a mental health difficulty or if you, you know, there's so many things I think that we carry around us, whether it's identities or, or, you know, other challenges that are going on in our life that aren't immediately visible, you know, especially in a workplace. If you can be honest and open about that, it makes the working relationship so much easier. You know, Angie and I meet every week and um, we always start with a song or uh, some quiet (laughs) time or, you know, we ask each other, how is your soul? That's how we start our our weekly meeting because it just it just makes work more enjoyable first of all but also more productive because you know you you just know each other's context and gosh you're going through this at the moment or actually you're feeling great at the moment so you might be able to take this on or you know just all those little decisions can really yeah it feels like it just an an open channel of communication really liberates uh, at least me and my working relationship with angie
5: likewise
1: so
2: tell me about how you guys um got into this work in particular, like what planted the seed for exploring this notion of community?
5: Well, for me, the seed got planted before, you know, well, before I came to divinity school, when I was living in Brooklyn and hanging out with all these people who were making art all the time. And I was at that phase that can come about when you're, when you're living in New York in your twenties and you're consuming a lot, like consuming a lot of, um, culture and i got to a point where i was feeling like okay we're consuming a lot of culture we're create we're trying to create a lot but somewhere in the midst of that i'm feeling increasingly restless and unfulfilled and that seems to have something to do with one the quality of relationship like the fact that there seems to be a ceiling on how or on how Deep we can go with each other. And you know, what Casper's describing in terms of the way we now run our weekly meetings, when I compare that to what was going on in the sort of nonprofit admin world that so many of us inhabited, you know, it was just it was just much shallower. And so I was longing for a way to crack that. And then also wondering about what was, what was the deal with the fact that we were all making art, which, which was creative. And yet it seemed to be kind of absent some of the ideals that I was longing to see art, um, enact in the world, you know, at best we were opening up, and, and shedding light on some of the problems that were that are rampant, and yet it didn't seem like we were pouring the creative energy I wanted to be um, going into actually solving those problems. And so that was when I started looking around for like, well, where does community happen? That's like that. Where where are the places where people can have conversations that go deep and and work toward ideals together? <laughs> and so, of course, for many, that might obviously be religion, but. I had grown up unaffiliated with any religious community, and it seemed like most of my peers were in that boat as well. Mm-hmm. I remember joining Match.com in you know <laughs> some point in that era, and everybody I got matched with was spiritual but not religious. Right? That was box <laughs> <me> picked. <laughs> I was like, "What is this category, and why is everyone who's matched with me in it? Uh, and where are those people? Where do they go?" So I just started this little spreadsheet in uh, in, a, in a Google Doc of Places, it was called SBNR resources, spiritual but not religious resources, places where these people might be going to find community and to, to, to be themselves, explore these questions. I didn't really know at that stage what it was about. But as that spreadsheet grew, I started learning more about this phenomenon. Oh, I'm part of a third of the millennial generation in America that is unaffiliated religiously. And oh, look at all of this about how the institutions of religion are in decline and seem to be freaking out about that. And there's so much narrative around isolation, and I just wondered, like, is it? It just seemed, <laughs> it seemed impossible based on my experience that I was part of a generation of non-belongers with commitment issues who just couldn't get it together to join a church. Um, it seemed like there was a lot more going on, and and that was that was what began to unfold as I looked into this. Was looks like there's a whole bunch of communities that are actually. Potentially performing religion-like roles in people's lives, but that doesn't seem to be part of the national narrative about what's going down. So that was what led me to divinity school. And in my first semester, I met Casper in an introduction to ministry studies class. And Harvard Divinity School is a bit of a, a bit of an out there place on the Divinity School map in that they let in weirdos like us, basically, um, <laughs> who are they're trying to create a microcosm of religious diversity in their student body. So that includes people who are unaffiliated uh, and people who are part of all kinds of spiritual and religious communities that are not necessarily in a majority position in this country. So we met each other and we kind of saw each other uh, right away once we shared our spiritual autobiographies because we discovered that we were asking a lot of the same questions and looking at a lot of the same population. So we I I shared my Google document with him in an act of great millennial intimacy and we started populating it together and uh then started speaking to the leaders of these communities we've gotten to know online uh-huh. and and that was really when we heard them speaking so much of the same sh- the same language that we thought okay we need to start sharing this in some way.
2: Wow. Uh, So many questions come from that. Uh, You know, it's funny that you bring up religion. And and that was one of the things that actually drew me into the work that you guys were doing, because my biggest issue with religion is that it's time consuming, Um, especially because I'm Indian. Like, literally, all Indian religious traditions take forever. You know, (laughs) at a minimum, it takes an hour, and it's an hour of just listening to somebody yell in Sanskrit. And it's really boring. So... (laughs) That just basically was my issue with religion, and that's why I'm not interested in it. But I'm curious, um, one, you know— why, why are we seeing such a, a strong interest in community of all, all of a sudden like, you know, like we've never seen in the past? It, you know, one thing, I heard a doctor at an event that I went to saying you know, we've lost a lot of the things that used to make up community in our lives, like getting together for dinner or going to religious services, and a lot of it has to do with, with the way technology has isolated us, so I'm curious. One, you know, what role has technology played in all of this? And more importantly, like, what is the impact of community on our lives, and, and how is it shown you know, in, in terms of communities that you guys have studied? which yeah, I realize like 20 questions in one. No, no, no.
1: <laughs> I, I want to take a step back so that I can give you an answer that really makes sense because I think what you illustrated with your frustration at a religious service in your context is that it's not doing the job it's supposed to do in your life. Right. You know, We, yeah. we, we come at this whole question from the from the perspective that religion is really the, the tools that we use to make meaning of our lives and to, to help us live flourishing lives. Um, and that that means all sorts of things. It means uh, giving you a sense of connection to other people around you, to your, your deepest self, to the natural world, to the moments of transcendence or the experiences that some people might call God, um, to, you know, to a sense of time, to history, to uh, really, it, it helps you find a place in, in, in the world. It gives you a sense of who you are. Um, and, and so in that, you know, the example that you gave when you're sitting there for an hour and all you're hearing is like shouting in sunscreen, it, it, like it's not helping you do that. And so a, a, a ritual or a set of, of words or chant or song or, or um, you know, all the, all the tools of religion um, were right for, for, for at one point in time. And, and to be honest, you know, someone could sit in that service and still really find something, but it's not, it's not working for you. And you are not alone in that question. <laughs> Um, right, we're seeing these drastic rise. The you know fastest growing religious group in the U.S. is none of the above. But the <laughs> um, right, a third of our generation, millennials, are unaffiliated, and, and the generation coming behind us is even more unaffiliated. So it's really one way traffic, um, and and so the, the institutions, as Angie was saying, are, are kind of freaking out about that. So when we think about the rise of community as a buzzword, whether it's in the tech industry or whether it's in government or wherever else, we see really as well responding to that trend of, um, you know, the, the the kind of falling away of the traditional structures of belonging, which often centered around religion, not exclusively, right? You know, Bowling Alone is that classic book, which looked at the decline of um, civic groups like bowling clubs, right? Um, but, you know, again, those, those two are related a, a lot in how we engage with time. And I think this is where technology comes in. Every time-saving device that's being introduced, you know, doesn't end up Giving us more time, it just lengthens the workday. Ironically, mm. and so there definitely has been uh, a, a kind of a, a shifting of of how we engage with time. Sunday is no longer the Lord's Day as it was traditionally in kind of Christian America of of days gone old or days gone by. Um, <laughs> And so, certainly, there's been kind of an encroachment of of the working world into our bedrooms, into our Sunday mornings, et cetera. But, you know, technology is also an amazing tool that helps us connect. You think of Meetup. You think of Facebook. You think of all sorts of places where people find real connection, uh, especially folks who can't get out of the house easily, for example. Mm -hmm. So, we are no way our our kind of anti-technology. I think often technology changes faster than the past... Technology changes faster than the pace of culture knows what to do with it. So I think we're definitely in in a time where, wow, we have these amazing machines called cell phones in our pockets, but like I'm addicted to it and I'm having dinner with my spouse and I'm checking my email like that is screwed up. Um, And so, you you know, there's some simple, I think, cultural tools that will start introducing as as a species or as a culture, like, you know, the phone basket, the idea of, you know, if you're going to a party to be with friends, you put the phone in the basket and you take it out when you leave you know, or I, I keep a tech Sabbath, so on Friday night, you know inspired by the traditional Jewish Shabbat Practice. I, I turn off my phone and I turn off my computer um, from sundown on Friday night to sun up or sundown on uh, on Saturday night. And it feels like going on vacation, you know, and it really does. It really does allow me to slow down and, and read a book without checking Facebook or checking, you know, what someone might have sent me. Um, so I, th- I think there is something there is a connection there. But I, I think it's a bigger question about. Um, you know, the institutions and the practices that help us understand who we are are no longer connecting with us. And so we need new ones. Okay. okay. So that, that
2: is raises the question that I was going to ask is, you know, if we're seeing a decline in religion, which to me potentially sounds like a really good idea, but that, you know, that, that's a whole other story. Um, what's replacing <laughs> yeah. it?
5: Well, that has been the crux of, of our work together and has been such a joy to get to know. Wow. Um, so when, when we started talking to community leaders around the country, it was really fascinating because we'd talk to someone who's running a CrossFit box or uh, working at SoulCycle or the November Project or these various fitness communities. We'd talk to people running maker spaces or gaming communities, right? we talked to people who are in leading social justice movements, all these various contexts which self-identify as secular, right? Um, but we we would have conversations with these leaders about their work and, and we'd say, you you know, we're curious about what it says in your manifesto around how you operate from a place of abundance rather than scarcity, and you're committed to personal transformation. Tell us more about that, right? Or we talked to Patrick Dowd, who runs Millennial Trains Project, and they go on a cross-country journey on a train, right, and stop in different places. And we were mentioning, you know, this reminds us so much of the practice of pilgrimage, which is part of many religious traditions. You know, tell us about that. And he's like, "Oh, well, it's definitely not religious," and we, it was a kind of common arc when we'd have these conversations with these leaders where they would identify, oh, yeah, well, I think maybe some of the people who come participate, you know, they would definitely call themselves spiritual. And then by the end of the call, Patrick's coming around and he's like, well, I guess someone did bless the train before it <laughs> left the station. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> come on, man. Um, so it's been really fascinating. And and this was the, the content of our work in our first report, How We Gather, was all about, let's look at some of the themes that are emerging in these secular communities, uh-huh. and the work they're doing in people's lives. And that work of personal transformation, the work of of accountability toward becoming the person you want to be, the work of social change, activating creativity, all these kinds of things like purpose finding that are coming out of these communities that are are helping people to belong to each other and and to become the people they want to be. That, to us, you know, (laughs) the irony is it's, it's not necessarily a replacement of religion. I think we would see it as an extension of the work that religion properly ought to be doing and in some cases has been and and still is but in many cases um you know is is not in especially in the lives of younger people in this country
1: and, and i think that's especially relevant as we think about the kind of brand nightmare that religion has so right really. now right <laughs> if, if, you, if you think of religion you know you you think of um you know, homophobia, or you right. think of exclusivism, Violence, greed, right? All of, yeah, like all, all these all these values, which absolutely institutional religious groups have have, yeah. have perpetrated in one way or another, um, very publicly often, but in no way reflect the the core mission and the core value of, of those traditions. And so, I think you know what we really want to do is is position, as Angie was saying, to position these these new groups, you know, the Crossfits and the Soul Cycles and the Maker Spaces and the Co-working Spaces as religious spaces as as places of religious experience because when we make meaning when we connect at a at a like heart to heart level I, I would say that is religious work and yeah. so what's it what's exciting for us is that it raises all sorts of new questions because you know if, if you're a crossfit trainer and you you've done your you've done your training on how to do you know burpees and and whatever the lifts and everything else but suddenly people start coming to you with questions of I'm going through a divorce or um, we're expecting a baby or my mother has passed away. You know, that trainer is suddenly in a role which is far beyond just a a physical well-being trainer. They're really in what we would call a pastoral role. And, you know, being in divinity school, you learn all sorts of um, methodologies and tools to, to help you guide someone through those moments. You know, that that's what liturgical design is all about. You know, I got married last year and we spent a lot of time thinking, well, what's the service gonna look like? What is this moment gonna mean? How does this connect with the other piece? And it meant that that, that day was incredibly special, not just for us, but everyone who came, because it was awesomely designed as a ritual, right? Mm-hmm. And so if, if we think about these places, uh, you know, these, these new spaces where people are coming together in meaningful community, what if, those, what if the leaders there had the same kind of pastoral and liturgical training and insight and, and the permission to be creative? I think we're starting to see all sorts of really a kind of a new dawn of a religious age. It, it might just use extremely different language. And, and the really important thing is that that is not new. This happens all the time in history. You know, we think of religion as something that never changes. It's static. But that's so not true. You know, uh, when you look back, uh, particularly in Judaism is a nice example, you know, it was a temple based religion until the temple was destroyed. And then, you know, people were creative and came up with the idea of Shabbat, which was a home based ritual, right? A Friday night together at home. You didn't go to the temple. You, you let it at home. You didn't need a rabbi or a priest. You did it at home. And so now we think of, you know, Passover as, as the kind of archetypal Jewish festival. But again, that was created by a group of rabbis. And, and that's not to say that it's not authentic or legitimate. It, it's deeply so. Um, but the same with the Christian tradition. We think, you know, going to church on a Sunday morning is what you do as a Christian. That's not what the first Christians did at all, you know. So I, I think we what we often spend our time doing is trying to reframe uh, what people are doing as as religious work and therefore also giving them permission to claim some of these traditions and play with them.
2: Mm. Well, you know, It sounds to me from uh, listening to you guys describe this that there are aspects of religion involved in almost all of elements that come from religion that are part of, you know, any of these, all of these communities, whether the people who created these communities intended for that or not. Yeah. Like when you yeah. hear people talk about Soul Cycle, you're like, yeah, you're a member of a cult. And, you know, the yeah. same thing. You, you, and, and, you know, I've been to Soul Cycle before. I was like, wow. I'm like, this is really cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is a cult I'd be happy to be a member of. Uh, hey, I, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't have $30 to spend on a spin class and I don't like it enough yeah. to do it. But, um, yeah. but you know, like I see elements of religion in all of this. So I, I'm curious if that's the case. Now, the other thing that I'm really intrigued by is, you know, you mentioned the decline of religion and the fact that religious sort of institutions are freaking out about this. Um, what are they doing? Like other than freaking out, what else has been their response? Um, what has been their response to your work? And are, are we going to find church suddenly being more like, a, a, you know, going to a movie anytime soon?
5: Well, you know, it was so wild when we put how we gather into the world, that little report about these secular communities, we expected to be in conversation with the leaders of those communities and the people participating in them. And we generally got a resonant response. But what the huge response and, and the sort of shock and awe and curiosity response came from the institutions of religion, who are basically you know, a lot of that freakout is centered on the millennial generation, right? Because the young people are not coming, the congregations are aging and shrinking. And so where are the young people? Well, it seems like they're at Soul Cycle, so <laughs> we need to learn more about this Soul Cycle phenomenon, right? So Casper and I, to our great surprise, have ended up in relationship with a whole bunch of leaders of religious institutions across traditions who are in that moment and who are, I guess you could say, who are, who are courageous enough to be approaching that moment from a place of curiosity and saying, okay, let's learn about this whole phenomenon and what you guys know, and let's think about how we might be able to respond. And so, I I mean, certainly I would say that, That is more the exception than the rule. But the people we have gotten to know who are taking that stance have been Pretty extraordinary partners to us and examples to us, just in terms of their generosity of spirit, in, in so far as let's see what we can do that would actually be a furthering of the work that is core to the purpose of our religious institution, rather than just trying to serve the institution itself, right? Because that's where a lot of things can go wrong. <laughs> and I want to lift up one of our favorite experiences of this, this kind of spiritual maturity, we call it. Uh, it was with a group of Catholic sisters of of nuns. Uh, We had a little conversation between these nuns and a bunch of millennial community leaders, most of whom were unaffiliated. So it was nuns and nuns, right? N-O-N-E-S with the N-U-N-S. And that was a conversation basically that we came into thinking, okay, the, the whole monastic movement is is in in crisis, just like the other institutions right because they're they 're aging, and the the convents and monasteries no longer have people to fill them, and these orders are dying. so we thought well, it would be great if, if these women could help pass along some of their wisdom and uh, you know this will be mostly about us sharing what we know and then, lo and behold, it was this experience of just such incredible. Um, Just generosity of spirit on the part of these women where they were so clear that their particular form and expression of faith was was coming to an end. And they had so much confidence and just sort of radiant excitement about these new things that were coming up. And these community leaders from the next generation who were doing things totally differently and who were coming about it from a totally different standpoint, and yet were doing what they saw to be holy work. And so they had been praying for all of us before we met. They continued praying for us after we left. And they ended up giving us one of the most profound experiences I think a lot of us had had of just being witnessed and honored and saying, you know what, the stuff you're doing matters, and we feel like it is sacred. Um, so there's, you know, that's a micro example, but we've actually ended up getting to know a lot of people who are really, um, who are really interested to help in supporting the next generation of what's happening, knowing that it's usually their children and grandchildren that we're talking about, right? So they have a stake in the people that they raised (laughs) having an experience of community and, and an experience of fulfillment in their lives, which is really, I think what a lot of them saw. Their own religious community providing.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting to think about, you know, so often we think about, okay, so the old is dying, but the new is emerging. But often the communities that we've seen. Walk that line the best are the ones who kind of bring the ancient and the emergent together in some way. And so um, I think what we'll see and, and what we are seeing amongst these new communities is that they'll often have some element of tradition or some element that, that makes it recognizably in, in a lineage in some way, um, which gives it the sense of um, solidity and trustworthiness. Because, you know, there's so many, whether it's, you know, one religious movement or another. Scientology or I, I don't know there's, there's all sorts of kind of interesting new religious movements that happen all the time but most of them don't last uh, and that's often because they haven't learned or, or being connected to history in some way so you know one thing that we're seeing a lot for example in the Christian world is rather than a congregation where you're all sitting facing the front and you can only see one another's you know head uh, and you're you're sitting in pews and you know all of that it feels kind of like a cold consumptive experience is this move towards dinner churches where People literally gather for dinner. You help cook together. You eat together. And you wash up together. Um, And that, you know, you sing. uh, There's there's no sermon, but there's a conversation question. So you really get to engage in the topic. Like yourself in conversation and dialogue, um, and there's still a moment of you know in the Christian tradition of breaking of bread and and drinking of wine, so serving of communion, and and that gives it this feeling of authenticity. I think that a lot of people look for. So I, I don't think we're going to move from like A to Z as it were, but but there, right. there is some connection. Yeah,
2: interesting. Interesting. So. We've talked specifically about communities that you guys have observed. So I'm curious if you were to take these ideas and apply them to finding a community that you want to be a part of and also building a community. So, you know, I think to some degree, we build a community around uh, the work that we do here at Unmistakable Creative. And I am curious, you know, how you would apply this in a business context.
5: Yeah, that feels like a really important question, especially as, you know, we're seeing more and more millennials who want their workplace to be a place of meaning and purpose, right? So it's it's almost as if in this moment where we're kind of starved for community, that becomes the primary hub. And so you have these roles emerging at places like Airbnb or, you know, Google or Facebook where the there's someone responsible for the community management Um, and (laughs) we've we feel like we've learned all of these skills in divinity school that are so oddly applicable to that question right these things about like holding space and facilitation and boundaries boundaries (laughs) and vulnerability and you know especially the honoring of life moments right you think about a sort of traditional office context where you celebrate people's birthdays or what have you and there's so much bound up in these traditions about, about life moments. So one of our, one of our dreams is is to sort of unbundle the gifts that these various religious traditions hold. <laughs> and, you know, in much the way that Casper has adopted this tech Sabbath, it's like, how do we right. get creative about reimagining and remixing what has been carried by these traditions through time that could be applied in something like a work context that would actually help to fulfill some of those jobs that people need done in their lives that are not being fulfilled by some sort of external religious community. Um, So we've, we've tried to do that, for instance, when we brought these community leaders together and we did that uh, last December. We brought 80 of them together here at the Divinity School. And it was really fascinating because some of the folks who work in, say, like tech tech roles um who weren't able to come for some reason or what have you and we said oh well you know we know about these other gatherings that that are happening and they're like no we want to come to the one at the divinity school (laughs) (laughs) like there was something about that extra level of of meaning meaning making that people are looking for so we've been actually trying to um you know, put a little pressure on the Divinity School while we're here to be like, you guys should start an executive education program that actually does that (laughs) for people in a work context, Um, because it feels like more and more of an important
1: piece of of people's work lives. Yeah, I do. I do think there are some real questions, though, at that intersection of business and spirituality, because, you know, on the one hand, gosh, what what an amazing um, place to, to build community, right. To build those deep relationships because, uh, that's where we spend so much of our time. Uh, on the other hand, I think, you know, so often there are still the, the questions of, um, you know, like what's really the bottom line, you know, if, 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 if profit is still the only uh, kind of goal, then other things will be sacrificed. And that can put people in difficult situations, especially when you're trying to create spaces of vulnerability and you have the CEO sitting next to a right, secretary. Right. And, you know, that it, it can feel really iffy and unsafe. Um, so I do think it's, it's something to really think about. The other thing that strikes me from your question, which we struggle with all of the time, is this like poverty of language. Um, You know, we we talk about community and just like love can be used from like, I love you until I die and I love pizza, right? There's a very different (laughs) thing but it's the same word. <laughs> community can mean like, you know, I have a like I have a podcast, right? And we have a listening community of lots of people who listen and love it, but they don't know each other necessarily. Um, and, you know, you can live in, in a community where, you know, I'm driving you to the hospital if you need a ride or, you know, I'm with you at your grandfather's funeral. That's a very different type of relationship. And so I, I feel like we do need to be a little bit careful about how we use language because just like we've had greenwashing, right? Where, where, People say they're offering great environmental sustainability and actually that, you know, the reality is a different story. I do think we need to be careful about, you know, community washing and and how much are we selling community versus what are we really offering people? So that's something I think about a little bit at at that intersection, which is just something to think about.
2: (laughs) I'm curious, um, what has been the resistance or, or general feedback from, like, how has it differed across different religions? Like, have you talked to, for example, a Hindu priest and a pastor? And how has their, their receptiveness to this idea been, been different?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's definitely a real a real range. Um, you know, and a range within traditions, oh, too. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. 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 And of course, I mean, uh, yeah, well, let's start with that, because I think certainly the most resonance that we felt from religious institutions are certainly on the progressive end, Mm -hmm. uh, theologically, as well as, you know, how they're organized, what we would call polity. So, you know, the the kind of decision-making structures. Um, So, for example, you know, I I did my best to really get into the Catholic Church, but boy, was that a struggle, Um, simply because the power structure is so centralized and is therefore much, much more conservative than in, you know, a, a denomination like the United Church of Christ. Christ, which has a very dispersed polity so decisions are made at the congregational level rather than at a centralised level um I mean, I, I think across religious traditions, it's been interesting, um, particularly, you know, Christianity is, is, is by far the largest group, of course, with, within within the U.S., um, but really within the Jewish community, there's been, a, I would say, an exceptional level, both of interest in this work, but also of investment in innovation. And that's been very exciting for us to see because there are institutions and foundations who want to learn and want to risk in a way that I think others are, are you know, less less so at the moment. Mm -hmm. particularly I'd say amongst you know Buddhist Hindus um, and Muslim communities a a lot of a lot of those are made up of uh, recent immigrant uh, families and so there's naturally at some some level of conservatism um, both in the theology and just politically as well Um, so that's a a, a group that is probably also to be honest less responsive to our work because Muslims and um, and Hindus and Buddhists in America are growing as a group unlike um, you know Jews and Christians so so there's just a there's just a contextual difference there as well hmm.
2: interesting i was hoping you were going to tell me that you're going to be able to get indian weddings short and soon that would be a, that'd be a real victory for your work as far as i'm concerned
1: <laughs> we will also work on that <laughs> Angie was recently at a wedding where, where there were drones filming there the, were drones time. Yeah, i
5: was at a wedding in Jaipur. it was my cousin's wedding four days long the whole nine yards wow. <laughs> yeah um <laughs>
2: Four <laughs> days, okay. Wow, yeah. and and drones filming the wedding—that's that, a whole other level. That—that that, that's that's well, yeah,
5: it did seem next level to me.
2: <laughs> wow, um, this has been really, really fascinating. I, I, now I know why Brian connected you guys to me. I mean, this is <laughs> this has been really, really intriguing and interesting. So I have one last question uh, for both of you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Mm, that's a great
5: question. Well, Casper knows that I'm I'm kind of a personality junkie, <laughs> so I to me something is unmistakable when it is a as as full as possible an expression of the uniqueness of a person. So I, I believe in each person's unique personality and unique potential, and so when something manifests, uh, the the potential that somebody has to contribute to this world that only they can bring. That's to me, the, the unmistakable quality and also the spark of what makes each person, um,
1: each person valuable. That's a great answer. Um, I think, uh, I'm going to get a little theological on you here, but I, mean, I, did. <laughs> yeah, I you know, I think uh, like Angie You know, all of us have a, uh, perhaps some spark of the divine in us. And I think what makes us unmistakable is that each of us has a unique, unique way to connect with, you know, that which is greater than all of us that way, that which is beyond language. Um, and you know whether that's through dance or music or silence or waves or you know wh- how however it is and what unique makeup of things help you connect to that thing that's bigger than yourself i think that's what makes us un- unmistakable awesome um
2: where can people find more uh, out about the, the work that you guys are doing <laughs>
1: You can visit uh, howwegather.org. There's uh, three little reports there, which you can download to kind of look at the, look at the the kind of landscape that we've been mapping. Uh, And then I have a little podcast called Harry Potter and the sacred text, which is dot harrypottersacredtext.com.
2: Cool. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring,